Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 153 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Lizzie Brown. Lizzie Brown loves getting new ideas up and running. At the moment, this means working with great people on the establishment and growth of social businesses. She's also into outdoor adventures, spontaneous kitchen dance parties, and mucking about in the garden. Lizzie has recently joined the team at Kindred Spirits Enterprises as CEO. KSC incubates new social ventures that improve community health, well-being, and education. Right now, the team is focused on the growth of the native botanicals industry across northern Australia and school readiness programs with kids. Since 2015, Lizzie has worked with early-stage social businesses in Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. Her contribution typically includes venture and program design, strategy, business model development, partnership brokering, and fundraising. During the past couple of years, Lizzie has discovered a passion for working with boards, supporting the creation of strong, effective governance from the outset. She's a voluntary director with various social enterprises and non-profit organisations. Lizzie played a key role in the development of Engineers Without Borders Australia for more than a decade. As CEO, Lizzie's team led the establishment and growth of major new international and domestic programs in humanitarian engineering and engineering education in partnership with community organisations, engineering companies, universities and government. In 2014, Lizzie was recognised for her contribution to humanitarian engineering as a winner in the Australian Financial Review and Westpac 100 Women of Influence Awards. She's the Churchill Fellow and was named in the Engineers Media Top 100 list of Australia's most influential engineers in 2013, 14 and 15. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Lizzie's views on the current state of the social enterprise sector in Australia. We'll get Lizzie's insights and perspective on social innovation opportunities, and we'll hear what Lizzie believes can be done to help incubate early stage social ventures. So Lizzie, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Tom. So to keep things off, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to working in the social enterprise sector? Certainly. So I started my career as an environmental engineer, and I followed that particular career pathway because I thought I could help provide very practical solutions to environmental challenges. Mm. But it didn't take me very long to realise that it's actually people and their relationship with the environment and how we make decisions that fundamentally impacts on not only environmental quality but, of course, on quality of life and inequality around the world too. So I started looking for ways to apply my engineering skills directly in community development Mm. contexts Um, and it was really this is 20 years ago now I found it very difficult I could see big oil and gas projects in Papua New Guinea I could see major road and bridge infrastructure projects in Vietnam but that really wasn't what I was after Um, and in fact in in those types of projects 
a lot of the, um, I guess, the, the material I was reading showed that the impact on the local community was often quite detrimental. So I was looking for a way of using my engineering skills with communities in a way that I thought was effective, meanwhile working um, as a consultant yeah. in the urban development sector and came across Engineers Without Borders. So that was back in early 2004, wow. not long after the organisation started. And I was just delighted because it was that perfect fit that I was looking for. Now, I then quickly realised at that stage, EWB was no more than a handwritten mission and vision statement, <laughs> yeah. albeit very good ones, um, and a group of quite young, you know, early, early career engineers yeah. who had similarly reacted to the state of the profession and said, we've got to do this differently. We want to practice from a place that's aligned with our values. Yeah. Um, and we realised or decided very early on in the piece that this wasn't about development to other people. In fact, it was almost the opposite. It was about our own development, mm. our own journey and how collectively as a society, whether we're talking about inner city Brisbane or, yep. or the global society, could work together to a better place, mm. whatever that looks like for each of us. Yep. So um, that actually ended up being a 12, 13 year Journey. journey, which was just remarkable. Um, I started out volunteering, as all of us did, yep. and that eventually then became a, a, a formal role with a, a title, and I did take on the CEO role there for, for a number of years as well. Wow. Um, and right from the start, we had that dual focus on supporting communities through technical and engineering capacity building. Yep. So it was always about this concept of how do we build the system, how do we build organisational capacity so that, that strong engineering uh, industries emerge yeah. in the environments we're working in and concurrently and perhaps even more importantly how do we educate the next generation of Australian engineers so that they put the community and people at the heart of their decision making mm. and I think that really corresponded with uh, a movement in Australia I think we triggered it yeah. and it, the timing was right as well um, for, for, for young people coming into engineering degrees to be saying we want more from our jobs we, we want jobs that align with our values. Um, and so, of course, that then manifested itself in university programs, corporate yep. partnerships and, and development programs, particularly in Timor-Leste, Cambodia and parts of South Asia as well. Fantastic. And I'm sharing this background with you because it led me to look at scale of mm. impact. How do we really create change that's more than local? Yep. Local change is, of course, where everything starts. That's critical. But once something's worked well in one community or in one location, how do we actually bring that across a whole region or a whole country? And and my aspiration is the world anyway. <laughs> yep, um, yep. And uh, so this is now going back about five years. I started to see more and more the opportunity for, of course, business models and more traditional business models around the sale of products and services to create that kind of scale. Yep. Um, so... One of the uh, programs of work we'd been involved in for many, many years was based on sanitation and challenging environments on Tom Lesap Lake in Cambodia. Yeah. So there's lots of floating communities up there. Um, many people will have mobile phones but won't have the train system. Mm. So the lake water quality is terrible, yep. but it's used for cooking, cleaning, washing and so on. So we started to say, well, um, you know, we were looking at different latrine solutions and that evolved into looking at biodigesters for household gas mm. um, and I might talk more about that in a moment but yeah. to deliver that sort of technology and the required social infrastructure 
through a charitable model reliant on grants is just an uphill slog we weren't ever yeah. going to win. Yeah. So yeah. we saw an incredible opportunity there to actually say, well, this is a, if this is a product that households genuinely need and value, then what's the price point at which we can sell it? So that started my journey into looking at social enterprise. Mm. Um, and essentially, I've, I've oriented all of my work now around some form of social business and particularly early stage social business. It's a fantastic yeah. story and I'm sure it's, well, it's, it's led you to where you are today. Yes. Yeah. And so as, as CEO then of Kindred Spirits Enterprises, yeah. tell us a little bit more about this impact organisation and what it does. Sure. So Kindred Spirits Enterprises is fairly new and it's the sister organisation of Kindred Spirits Foundation. Um, the foundation has been working in community health and supporting community education and employment opportunities for over 10 years. Yeah. Um, the foundation realised that uh, there are different modes of working uh, and it was increasingly involved in what I would call development programming and development program delivery mm. and so Kindred Spirits Enterprises was set up. Um, I joined at around that point in time yep. and our focus is on supporting early stage social ventures and social initiatives, to, that are particularly in community health, wellbeing and in employment opportunity creation. Now that's of course incredibly broad, yep. I appreciate that. Practically what that means is that for the next five to 15 years, we're going to be focused on supporting the development of the native botanicals market in Australia. How exciting. Incredibly exciting. Not because I had any particular connection to native botanicals um, or, or, or the team more broadly, but because they present an incredible opportunity for traditional owners, so mm. for, for first Australians, to gain employment and to run strong businesses on country. Yeah. Um, there's 60 to perhaps 80,000 years worth of knowledge yeah. around the medicinal and nutritional value and mm. use of plants. Some of that knowledge has been retained, which is incredible. Um, and there's this real desire that we're hearing clearly from communities and, and, and existing Aboriginal enterprises that they'd like to access markets for these products in a way that's respectful for their, of, of their, their knowledge and yep. their country. Yep. What an amazing opportunity. It is. It, it, it is because it's scalable. Yep. It's aligned with the values and aspirations of, of many people and it's on country mm. and and it's about a resource and I mean that in the most positive way it's a resource that's renewable and it's in our local environment yeah. it's right yeah. in front of us yeah. um, I don't know if you've had the chance to spend much time out in the out in the bush but when you're with people that know about the plants suddenly what might look like a fairly homogenous landscape turns into a pharmacy or a mm. grocery store yeah. you know depending on what plants you're looking at and often both in the same plant, both in the same leaf even. It might yeah. have antimicrobial properties and really high antioxidants. Yeah. So, you, you know, you can use it for a hand sanitizer, perhaps, yeah. and maybe you can use it as a health supplement. It's insane. It is. And it we're is. just starting this journey. Well, some of us are just starting it. Of course, many, many Australians have known this and, and survived and thrived with these plants for thousands for, of years. For, for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. So it's just some of us. Some of us that have come to, <laughs> are coming to the table a bit late. Yeah. <laughs> a few yeah. thousand years late. Oh, yeah. So when it comes to social enterprise incubation and acceleration, this yep. is a, a big part of, of helping a lot of these, yep. these enterprises right. move forward. Where do you believe then the common gaps lie in helping these sorts of businesses of this nature to, to succeed? Ah, oh, Tom. 
So in the last five years, I've worked with about half a dozen different social enterprises and the major gap I've encountered multiple times has been on the period between the successful demonstration of a pilot yes. and being ready for impact investment. Mm. Um, and maybe if I can give a very specific example, uh, for the last couple of years, I've worked with a team to set up a, a social business in Timor-Leste called Bear Lafayette, which stands for Crocodile Water. So just just briefly, Bear Lafayette um, uses the integration of, of a new household-scale water treatment system mm -hmm. with solar to provide pot verifiable potable water and power mm -hmm. to a range of different scenarios. So we tested the technical system in a community health centre in a school. Yep. Um, so that's essentially a public sector model. So we were looking at what would it what would it look like for government and in the interim donors to to pay for power and water as an integrated service. Yep with a locally trained technical team. Mm. And we also trial the system in four water kiosks. So we train teams of four young entrepreneurs, so a group of 16, to learn how to run their own micro business using bottled water in 20 litre carboys yep. as the product with really clear branding. Now, um, water and power were just the vehicle. Our ultimate objective was youth employment mm. and skills development. Yep. But we saw provision of clean water and power as a, as a mechanism for, for doing that. Um, so uh, I think we were very successful in, in testing both of those models, mm. albeit small scale and very early, early stage. Um, and there was a lot of work still to be done to refine both business models. We weren't at a point where... I think it would be reasonable to ask an investor to come on board. Yeah, yeah. In fact, there's probably another two years of work there, reasonably. Yeah. But we also had we'd already received significant pilot grant funding, and we needed probably another. Well, we do need another five hundred thousand to get us to the point where I could turn around to impact investors and say, right, we're looking for one point five million or two point five million, and we're going to set up fifty kiosks across the country, yeah, yeah. and we're going to work with. 20 and then 200 schools and we will oh, my, my work shifted on to the other things but we we could we could get there yeah but there's this gap in between where more preferably philanthropic funding really is required yeah. before impact investment is possible mm -hmm. um and i've seen that in a number of cases and it's it's tricky because it's not as attractive as saying we're funding the idea from the outset. Yeah. Um, but it's it's still too high risk for the impact investor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very difficult space to be in in that, that period of time. It's, to, to and really it's get... critical. If we're serious about scale, then, th yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, I'm not suggesting anyone should back initiatives that don't look like they're going to get off the ground. But yeah. when there's been two or three years' worth of work invested into getting things right, better to leverage that and push forward. Oh, completely. Yeah. So what do you see as the most important traits of social entrepreneurs then? Well, it would have to, I'd have to then say tenacity and resilience on the <laughs> yeah. back of that, wouldn't I? Yeah. Um, actually, I think maybe this is cliched, but, you know, being quite very bold and being brave and putting a vision out there that mm -hmm. feels different and feels uncomfortable and selling that again and again and again. I'm, I'm about to get on the phone with ingredient companies to try and sell Kakadu Plum this morning. Like, I've not done that before. 
but that's okay because I believe in the job creation opportunity. Yeah. So I'm going to learn a lot about plants. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about the social enterprises that you've worked with more recently. Um, well, I might I might go back to ATEC Biodigesters for a moment yeah, and work on Tom Lassat Lake because um, I think that demonstrates uh, the sort of journey that I'm really enjoying going through mm. with enterprises. So uh, with Engineers Without Borders and our partner, Live and Environmental Education, we designed um, a new type of biodigester, which really looks like a household rainwater tank Yep. Um, with a volume of about 3.25 cubic metres. Um, and so... The way it works is that you put animal manure into the system. Yep. It decomposes in an anaerobic, it's an anaerobic chamber, so yep. in the absence of oxygen. And then you get two products, a high-quality fertiliser and biogas for cooking. Mm. So it's really beautifully simple. Yep. Um, biodigesters have been around for a long time, but most of them are made of brick and mortar in the ground, so they're completely unsuitable for a flood-affected environment. Yep. Yep. So our system uses um, uh, a plastic, basically, um, and it can be, it sits sort of half below the ground, a couple of metres high, um, so perfect for a household with a couple of cows or mm. four or five mm. pigs. Yep. So um, we were successful in receiving a Google Impact Challenge grant of 500000 to test the business model, to build the team and to right. refine the technology. I mean, a brilliant combination and I've been incredibly fortunate because we then got um, a DFAT grant that was offered in conjunction with the Google Impact Challenge for Bay AX. so if Google and DFAT would like to offer more of those I'd be delighted <laughs> because 500,000 is a really good amount to yeah. to give you you know an 18 month two year runway to get this sort of work yeah. happening yeah, anyway that led to the establishment of ATEC Biodigesters. Yep. Um, ATEC is a play on appropriate technology. Um, we now have a remarkable team based in Phnom Penh um, who are installing biodigesters every day right across the country wow. um, for rural farming families um, and a, an increasingly extensive distribution network. Um, one of our real points of difference, aside from the technology, is our focus on after-sales service um, and really, <clears throat> excuse me, really making sure that the customer can continue to get value from that product for its full lifetime. And just to give you a, a sense, um, the the system itself is about six hundred and fifty US dollars. Yep. We sell it with the cook stove. So our value proposition is a clean, modern kitchen. Yep. The cook stove is therefore a critical part of that, mm. and all of the biodigester that sits out the back is actually just the mechanism for, for getting there. So for the household, this means that they no longer need to buy firewood or need to collect it. Yep. Um, it's improving crop yields. It's you know, it's just an incredible package. Yeah. Yeah. The family typically would look at paying that off for $30 per month, but the product has a life span of 12 to 13 years. Mm. So we're talking about, about 3500 US dollars worth of savings across the product wow. lifetime. So we went through our first uh, impact investment raise about 18 months ago, uh, which really helped us grow the team um, and focus on the sales strategy at depth. Um, we're now looking at expansion into Bangladesh and have pilot units in Myanmar, Papua New Guinea and Thailand and very soon in, in Fiji as well. So you know, our, our ambition is absolutely global. Um, we're looking at a million biodigesters sold and working effectively in the ground, creating 
improve qualities of life for people in the coming 10 years. And I feel like that's, and it sounds huge, and it is when you're starting out, yeah, but yeah. I'd like to think it's actually 10 million. Mm, wow. So the, what, the reason I want to talk to that example is that it's starting to demonstrate the scale. Mm. And and this is a business that uh, that I truly believe will be profitable, but every element of how the technology works within the household is about creating social change. And even if the worst case scenario happened today and for whatever reason that business had to close, the employment opportunity that it's created in yeah. the last two and a half, three years for 40-odd plus, plus Cambodian people and the training and support that have gone into building, particularly the leadership team there, I feel is a worthy outcome in itself. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, it's a great project. It really is. And my, I guess my role there was being a champion for the idea uh, and the original partnership with Live and Learn, um, who were an ongoing shareholder with Engineers Without Borders, yep. pushing more funding and trying to take the idea forward and doing that within a social business model, mm. finding the right CEO who would blend the business background with an interest, a deep interest in supporting the social values. Yeah. And I think that was absolutely key. Have, you know, it, well, it's always key getting that right person on board. Yeah. Um, and then I chaired, I chaired the new board for a period, and I've I just yesterday formally resigned as a director. Oh, so wow. my my involvement there is largely done in a formal capacity. I will, of course, continue to champion the work, yeah. but I feel like I've done my bit. And there's an incredible board. The shareholders are amazing. Yeah. A carefully curated group that will bring so much value above and beyond the financial mm. investment. Um, and so, coming back to your question about qualities of the social entrepreneur, yep. um, I know this is self-explanatory, but if they, you know, if they've not got that social change background, then I think it's going to be an uphill battle. Mm. If they've not got the business background, then good luck. Yeah, yeah. Um, because it's really such a critical blend of the two. Yeah. Um, and I think there's probably quite a bit of work for us to do there, uh, supporting those from the business world to understand impact measurement, design for social change, yep. advocacy, you know, all of the, the tools that are core to how the community sector has traditionally worked, but then bringing the financial literacy and the business acumen into the community sector. Um, I'm lucky because I come from an engineering background, so I'm... You know, I, I quite like the idea to have two hours to sit down and build an economic evaluation of a business, but I think that's probably the exception, not the norm. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. That's great. So, Lizzie, I'm, I'm really curious to hear a little bit more about a recent trip to Bataan that you've, you went on, and you went there with the intention of learning about the Gross National Happiness Index. Yep. And so tell us a little bit more about the purpose of this trip or what you learnt. Certainly. So I travelled with an incredible group of people uh, through a Small Giants impact safari. So Small Giants have started organising these really special experiences to support a, a curated group of people um, to learn about social change creation in a really unique environment. Um, so the group included Australians, Israelis and then individuals from New York, Tokyo and Amsterdam, yep. um, most of whom are involved in impact investment and philanthropy in some way. Yep. And 
we went to learn about the Gross National Happiness Index and, and tool as a way of thinking differently about social change in our own countries mm. um, and our own role personally and as business leaders in, in doing that. So um, Bhutan's quite a remarkable country. Uh, there's less than a million people mm. and there's been incredible focus placed on retention of the positive parts of their, their culture. And there's a whole range of historical reasons how that's been enabled. Um, the previous king, I believe, was asked about gross domestic product yep. and in response said, we focus more here on gross national happiness, which then gave rise to quite a, a profound way of looking at health and well-being in the country. Yep. And, and I should say it's a Buddhist country, so that the principles of Buddhism strongly underpin it. Mm. So there are a number of different applications of the gross national happiness framework, and then I'll tell you a little bit more about what it actually is. There's um, a non-profit centre yep. that hosted us who look at application of the, the tool with youth programs, for example. Yep. There's the Gross National Happiness Commission, which advises government on policy. So they use the tool to review and improve policy that's that's been put before them. Um, and then there's a, a social science you know, research team that mm. undertake um, a survey every three years. So there are four pillars behind the tool and then nine dimensions. And essentially it's a way of saying, well, how do we look at all of the different aspects that we believe are important to a healthy, happy, thriving community? So how time's used, mental health and well-being, yeah. um, you know, cultural practice, um, you know, physical health, of course, comes in as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so those dimensions are then underpinned by about 120 or 140-odd different indicators. So it's a much more integrated and and complex way mm. of looking at health and well-being. Yep. But if we compare it with GDP, GDP captures economic activity around a whole range of activities that I think most of us would agree aren't positive for health and well-being. Yeah, yeah. The tobacco industry, gambling, extractive resource industries. Yes, we're dependent on those as well. But uh, the billions of dollars spent on health treatment are all captured in GDP. Yep. So uh, the intention wasn't to say how do we directly take this model and way of life per se, mm. but instead to use it as a mirror to reflect or to help us reflect back and look at our own own way of working and being. That said, I mean, I do think there are a number of direct opportunities to to apply And I'm really keen to hear about those. So um, I might talk about my own work with Kindred Spirits Enterprises to start with. Yeah. Uh, the first thing that I'm going to do is look at a modification of the tool in everyday decision making. So if we're so over the last couple of days, I've been working with my colleague Anne to develop a new due diligence process yep. for customers because we're we're not going to accept sales from accept sales opportunities from anyone. We would like to curate the group of customers we work with. So the GNH tool then gives us a starting framework to say, well. You know, is this a business, one that's aligned with ours in terms of values and yes, in terms of yep. practice? And more broadly, if we partner with that particular organisation, what are the key ingredients to that partnership working effectively Great. as opposed to it being a transaction of money and yep. time? Yep. Um, then, so I guess that's sort of on a day-to-day decision-making basis. Um, there are a number of individuals in the group that are now going to look at how the tool might be implemented within local government. 
within councils. So I, I hope and anticipate there'll be a little bit of a, of a healthy race there between a number of uh, mm. different locations to yep. see how that might guide decision-making. Yeah, the very first thing that comes to mind there is urban development. Absolutely. It's the area I started my career in and, um, you know, I think the sector's come away since then. But when mm -hmm. we look around us and see enormous, homogenous, high-density residential development with a complete absence of focus on social cohesion and community building or token efforts, yep. tools like the GNH tool can really help to bring yeah, in that focus on what value will we... And that's what it's about. It's about what do we define as value. Yep. Fundamentally and simplistically, we live in a society that's adopted a capitalist and consumerist model that values money as almost the driving value as yeah. opposed to saying it is one of many tools mm. that we work with. Yeah. How do we start celebrating and assigning true value to social change creation yeah. to time? And, in fact, I know over the next couple of months when I work with First Australians around their, the development of their businesses, um, certainly profitability will be one indicator of success but and I'm thinking of a few groups in particular here, constantly growing profit but no time on country, for example, or no time with family mm. would actually be the antithesis of the sort of vision that's that they're aspiring yeah, to. Yeah, there yeah. are so many other reasons why, why, um, why we might want to start a business but then manage its growth to create other types of value. Yeah. Oh, such great insights there. I'll be really curious to see how you, you know, move forward and, and implement that GNH, those GNH principles within Kindred Spirits and, and other projects that you touch as well. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And it's, of course, it's, it's not the only model. There are other models yeah. around as the Bhutanese team were really clear to identify yeah, too, that yeah. which was so refreshing mm. to hear politicians there talking about looking at Swiss government and looking at Scandinavian social services and systems. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. What a trip. Yep. So to finish things off, Lizzie, tell us about a few books or films or resources that you've come across recently which you'd recommend to, the, to our audience. I'd love to, and I could talk about books for hours. So um, there, are, there are three I'd love to share that I've read fairly recently. Yep. Um, the first is actually much lighter and less work-related. Um, it's called The Feather Thief by Kirk Wallace Thompson. It's a tongue twister. It is. It's a tricky one. And it's based on a true story about a young violin prodigy called Edwin who develops an obsession with flying, uh, with sorry, with tying flies for fly fishing. I don't know that he ever actually goes fishing. It's not about that. It's about the art of tying mm. the fly. And he goes and steals priceless feathers from the Tring Natural History Museum north of London. So it's this big feather heist. And then, and we're talking about birds that, like Darwin's finches and Wallace's yeah. birds and birds of paradise. And yeah. it's just it, like birds that can't be replaced. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, he takes the, the, the feathers off and whole breasts and wings and they get sold through the black market. And it takes years wow. for this for him to be tracked down. And, in fact, some some of the specimens are recovered, some with tags and so on. Yep. Um, it's just a fascinating story. 
I loved it. I, I finished that a week ago, so just had to tell you about it. Right. Um, two other books, more, I guess, work-related that I'd love to share would be uh, Frederick Leloux's book, Reinventing Organisations. I'm assuming you've read it. Yeah. You yeah, you have. Yep. Yeah, so that's my kind of go-to management leadership yep. kind of book at the moment. Um, for people that haven't read it, it looks at the future structure of organisations um, and there's a number of principles that it suggests teal organisations are based on. One is very much around a, a different model for decision-making yep. in which individuals who have the most experience and are most impacted by the decision come together mm. as part of the decision-making team. So it's very fluid, yep. can be quite dynamic. I, uh, yeah, I can... I've had some experience trying to implement aspects of that and it's not easy and it's so different and uncomfortable compared with how we typically work within a hierarchy. Yeah, brilliant for anyone, I think, that's serious about about effective leadership Mm. in a team or organisation. Um, and then Bruce Pascoe's Dark Emu is, of course, very related to the work that I'm doing now. Such a good book. Incredibly inspiring and I think just serves to highlight you know, our previous conversation about the incredible opportunity that we all have as Australians to respect our natural you know, our flora and fauna here um, and look at ways in which that can sustain yeah. a healthy population. Um, so they're, they're my three sort of books that I've picked, um, but I also had the pleasure of seeing Damon Gamow's new film, 2040. How was it? Fortnight. It was brilliant because it shares such a positive vision for the future, which was absolutely his intent, and he's been incredibly successful in doing that. So I think the um, the film premiered on the Gold Coast about a week and a half, two weeks ago, and is now showing around Australia, so um, I'm hoping to get to the Brisbane screening soon. Um, the reason I wanted to mention it, though, is that Damon travelled to something like 17 different countries and then selected uh, half a dozen technical sort of or solutions that are already demonstrated and already shown to be effective that we could see at Mm. scale in the future that would help create um, a more equitable, thriving, resilient community. So decentralised solar systems that are connected for for power sharing, um, the use of seaweed as a source of protein but also as a a carbon capture system Mm. um, that oxygenates water and addresses ocean temperatures, Um, you know, uh, autonomous vehicles, you know, they're just some of the examples. But I think we need more, a lot more discussion and a lot more focus on the positive opportunities. And, in fact, I was chatting with a a very good friend of mine yesterday, Amanda Carl, who coincidentally is in Damon's film talking about the role of women. And we agreed that so much time and energy is spent dealing with the problems, which obviously needs to happen. But as a society, we don't spend anywhere near enough time envisioning what the future looks like. Mm, And until we do that, it's very hard to effectively move away from that reactive mode into a proactive one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Such a good point to end on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good. The film sounds great, as do the books. I'll stick some links through them in the article. But thanks so much, Lizzie, for your time and generous insights today. It's been great to talk, and we really look forward to following your journey as you continue. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. 
please leave your comments below and remember we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.